morning, and thank you very much. Uh, we are in a, a, the series called Encounter on experiencing the person of the Holy Spirit. And if you have a Bible and can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that would be great. I think the, uh, if you're new to Christianity, I think the person of the Holy Spirit is one of the u- most unique things about Christianity. He's one of the major differences between Christianity and all other religious systems or ways of being. Um, if you imagine a sort of spectrum in religions from religions where God is very down here and among you, uh, but not very up there and high and lifted up on one end of the spectrum, and then you have on the other end of the spectrum, God is very distant and sovereign and up there, but he's not very down here and among us and accessible. You can imagine that spectrum and where different religions go on it. Right? So you have a very Something like paganism, where you've got religions where God is so near and accessible, he's actually very like you. You think about the Greek or Roman myths, you've got gods, they're very like us, but they're also very like us, and they end up like squabbling and fornicating and arguing and losing their temper, and they just think, you're just a big person, and that's not really worth worshipping. Or on the other hand, you have something like Islam, where you have a very, very high, transcendent, distant God, but he doesn't. He's not accessible to you. You're not really able to go, he knows what it's like to be me. He is here with me in daily life. He is living through what I'm living through. He's walked in my shoes. You don't have that. But in and through the person of the Holy Spirit in Christianity, you have effectively the best of both worlds. You have a God who is holy and high and lifted up and inhabits eternity and fills heaven and earth, who has come in the person of the Spirit to become like you and to walk with you and to empower you and talk to you and fill you, baptize you, seal you, anoint you, drench you, all those sorts of things in your daily life, speak to you. And you find in that we have both the thoroughly transcendent and the thoroughly imminent here and among us in the same person. The person of the Holy Spirit is central to our experience of Christianity. And in this series we've been taking four words that the New Testament uses to describe how we encounter him. Those words being filled, baptized, sealed and empowered. And today we're going to be looking at sealed. I'm going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and beginning at verse 12. Paul is writing to a church, uh, trying to correct their misunderstanding of his change in travel plans, which sounds strange, but you'll see where he goes with it as we read. 2 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you, For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say, yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. For all the promises of God find a yes in him. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 
And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. This is the word of God. Paul is defending himself here against the charge of yanking people around, of, of changing his plans and faffing them about so that they weren't sure what he was doing. And they think he's a ditherer. They think he's messing them about. And he and this church have a complicated history. If you know the New Testament well, you'll know that Paul planted this church, then left town, and then came, had to write to them because there were all sorts of chaotic things going on in the church, many sinful things. And some of them responded very well and repented, and some of them really didn't. And then there's now a group in the church who's opposed to him, but other groups who are for him, and it's very sticky. And as a result of that, they think he has messed them about by saying he was going to visit and then changing his plan. And he is writing to try and convince them, no, I didn't change my plan because I can't make up my mind. I changed the plan because I wanted to give you some more time to be able to restore the relationship at your end because I want to be friends with you, but I needed to give you some time to decide if you wanted that with me to restore the relationship. And in the middle of that, which is a defense of Paul's integrity, like, am I a truth teller? He also includes this beautiful statement of God's integrity. Effectively saying, I am, in that sense... I want you to know not just that I keep my word, but that God always keeps his word as well. And that statement of God's integrity is something we often quote, but may not quite know why it's there. Which is this statement about that all of the promises of God are yes and amen. And it might, if you've been around the church a while, you've probably heard it, maybe somewhere. But it may be that you're, I'm a little bit unclear on why that is there in this letter. And the point Paul is making in this verse, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, he is not yes and no, but in him it's always yes, for all God's promises find their yes in him. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. What he's saying is Jesus is not a vacillating, wavering, wishy-washy ditherer who's continuing to go, oh yes, oh actually no, good point. Mm, yeah, I said yes to you, but oh actually no, it's really no. Yeah, actually, ah! you know, he's not like that. That's not Jesus at all. Read the Bible and you'll see that God makes promise after promise after promise and you and I might find ourselves wondering if he's going to keep them and then we look at Jesus and see all of those promises fulfilled beautifully in him and confirming utterly that God keeps his word. Jesus is the most emphatic yes you could possibly imagine to the promises of God. So you might read your Bible and, can, and ask these questions. Say, are we really believing that God is going to crush sin and death forever and crush the serpent? Is he actually going to do that? And then God in Jesus Christ says, yes and amen, I am going to do it. And then you read on and you say, are we, can we seriously imagine it? Is it even possible that God can keep his promises to Israel while opening up the kingdom to all kinds of Gentiles like you and me. And then in Jesus Christ, God says, yes and amen. And we go, oh, are you seriously saying that can be done? Both expressing God's justice, so we know that he's been righteous, but also showing mercy to rebels like me. And in Jesus, God says, yes and amen. 
And then we keep asking, we say, and he, would he honestly do that so as to take on a shameful death, coming as a, like taking the form of a slave and then being executed and tortured by the people who hate him? Is he actually going to do that? And then in Jesus, God says, yes and amen. And then is he really even going to rise again? Is it going to be worth it? Is he going to rise, ascend into heaven, pour out his spirit and come again in glory to judge the living and the dead? And in Christ, God says, yes and amen. So it's a way of confirming that in Jesus, all of the promises of God are kept because God is not a liar. And you know that if you look at the Lord Jesus. And then the question that gets raised is, okay, well, that helps me understand all of the promises God has already kept. But what about the promises God's made that haven't yet been fulfilled? What about those promises? And this is where Paul says, you have a guarantee of that too. And that guarantee is the person of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So if you want to know, has God kept his past promises? You look at Jesus. You want to know, is God going to keep some of those promises to me he's made that I haven't seen fulfilled yet? And the answer there is, if these promises are made in the word of God, that God is going to preserve and protect you, and he's guaranteed that he will keep them by giving you the person of the Holy Spirit. In that sense, the Holy Spirit is the person who shows us that God is not a liar. That's what he is. He's the one in whom we have been anointed and sealed and guaranteed and Encountering the Holy Spirit, therefore, is not just for the spiritual fireworks and the stories. So many of us were here. We had a fantastic evening on Wednesday night here, praying and encountering God together midweek. And it was a beautiful time. And the reason we do that, things like that, and love that, and we'll do it in a few minutes, is not only or even primarily for the spiritual fireworks or the stories, as much as I love them and treasure them. Actually, it's because when those things happen, when the Holy Spirit's power is felt, it once again reminds us so deeply and beautifully that we are children of God, that we are owned by Him, sealed by Him, anointed by Him, guaranteed of our inheritance with Him. So it isn't just for the story. It's actually for our relationship with Him, knowing deep down in our boots that we are loved of God. The pastor who led the church when um, I first went to go and work for a church, I was on a gap year when I was 21, and it was, you know, church down on the south coast. And the pastor was actually from not far from here. He was from Downham. And he was a fairly, you know, I think a rough stick is probably what you'd call him. You know, he was kind of like a tough guy. Um, he was in his 60s then, and I think. And he would, he would come up to young pastors and frighten them. And he'd do it on purpose. Sometimes he'd do it by, like, hiding behind things and scaring us, like literally doing it. But sometimes he'd come up with this very fiery question he'd want to challenge young leaders on. And he'd come up to us and he'd go, How do you know you're saved? And his finger would stick in your face. And he would ask it in such a way that you didn't know you were saved. Like, he'd do it. It was amazing. Go, How do you know you're saved? Go, I'm really not sure that I do. And you'd see people, like, dropping like flies as this question was being asked. They didn't know what to say. Ah! And he would keep going, ah, come on, you don't even know it. You don't even know why you're saved. And I got lucky. And he came to me and he said, how do you know you're saved? And the first text that came into my head was Romans 8. And I, so I said, I know that I'm saved because the Holy Spirit bears witness in my heart that I'm a child of God. I don't know where it came from. It just fell into my head, right? But you could tell he was, he was crushed. He looked at me and that's it. That's right. And walked off. But you could tell he was just devastated that I'd got the right answer. And I've never forgotten it. Because actually Paul's understanding of how you and I know we're children of God is the person of the Holy Spirit. I've like since discovered how true that is. And it's true in a text like this, isn't it? 
For I know I am a child of God because I have been anointed, sealed, guaranteed. And if you're anything like me, you can't say that without hearing Stevie in the background. Signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. And of course it's true. Like you are signed and sealed and delivered. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that those things are true and that therefore you are his. You are anointed, sealed and guaranteed. So I want to consider each of those images for a moment that Paul has used here. Right? Verse 21, it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. There's a lot of confusion about what the word anointing means. I find sometimes people use it, but they aren't quite sure what it means, and they might just mean it means really good. But in the, in the Old Testament, anointing was a process. You, it was like it was basically pouring olive oil over somebody's head. That's what anointing was. The oil represented the person of the Spirit, and you would pour olive oil over somebody's head, and you wouldn't just dab it on like some of us do, you know, like if you pray for people with, for healing, you do a little dab, oh no, because it's very sticky and we don't really like it. No, they would like pour it over. The image the psalmist uses is, I love the oil of God dripping down the beard and going all over his collar. That's what it talked about. In other words, the, it was representing the setting apart of a person for leadership and service. They did it for their priests and their kings, but they would do it with this pouring of oil, this drizzling, this kind of gushing forth of the oil of God to mark them out. And they'd do a lot of it, and it would be covering them so that their face would shine, but they'd be covered in sticky stuff, right? That's how they did it. And so to anoint, in literal terms, is like to smear or to drizzle, to pour oil over something, right? So I don't know if you ever eat at Italian chain restaurants, but they all seem to do this, Prezzo, Zizi, Pizza Express, those sorts of places. You go and have a meal at one of those, And in most restaurants, when you order your meal, they give you the meal you want. But in those Italian chains, they don't. They give you the meal that you nearly want, and then they come around with three supplementary questions. The first question is always, "Uh, would you like some grated Parmesan? And you say, yes, I think I will. And they go, then within seconds, the whole thing's covered in cheese. And then they say, would you like some black pepper? And you say, yes, I think I will. And they produce, uh, it's at least a meter and a half long, a pepper shaker. And they go, like this. And then they say... "Uh, some anointing, and they appear with a little thing of oil, and they never ever say, would you like some anointing, but I kind of wish they did, because that's what the word is, it's like, would you like some, would you like me to pour some chili oil, or something like that over your thing, you go, yes, I think I will, and in future, by the way, you can always just ask that, they'll know what it means, say I sent them, say I sent you, and just say, excuse me, could I just have some anointing, a bit of anointing, that's what it means, right, it's the drizzling, or the covering of something in oil, it's the pouring out of oil in order to mark it aside, but in this case, of course, for ministry, for leadership, and service. And it was such a big thing for Israel that they looked forward to their future king as being the one who was going to be anointed or smeared or drizzled with the oil of the Holy Spirit. That's what they, they effectively looked, that's what they called him. They called him the Messiah, which means the drizzled one, the anointed one. And in Greek, that's the word Christ. It means to say he is the anointed. He's the one, the oil of God's spirit is cascading over him and is set him apart for ministry and leadership and service. And then Paul made this move, which is to say that you also have been established in Christ and you also have been anointed. The oil of God's spirit hasn't just been poured over the Christ, the anointed one. It's been poured over you as well because you are a Christian you are an anointed one, a drizzled one. So next time you tick a census and says, what religion are you? And you tick Christian, if you do. Or next time you put on Facebook, you know, I am a Christian. Notice the claim you're making. I am a drizzled one. 
I am a smeared one. I am one of those people, those blessed, blessed people who has the oil of God's spirit poured all over their head so it runs over their collar. That's what I'm claiming. Glory to God. That's what we are. That's what Paul is saying you are by virtue of being anointed by the Holy Spirit. The second thing he says, he says you're anointed. Then he says, God has also put his seal on us. Okay, now, seals in Paul's world were not cute animals, but they were customized stamps that would serve as validation of something or somebody, and they would be pressed into either wax or clay to mark this thing out as being from the person who's stamp it was, right? So a seal is one of those things on the right, where you just press it into wax or clay, and you show that's yours. And people use them for actually a number of different things. Seals could communicate authority. Like, they could communicate, because I've got this person's seal, I am authorized by, usually it would have been a him, to do this task, right? So Joseph is given Pharaoh's seal, That means Joseph's got a ring on his finger that he can show people and say, the king has authorized me to do this. It would serve in that sense in our world like a badge of rank would serve for a commissioned police officer or military officer, right? The state has given you the authority to arrest people and throw them in jail or something, right? It's it's a way of saying, I have been commissioned by a higher power than you. So if you want to argue with me, you're arguing with the one who gave me this seal. You're arguing with the king. I've got authority. And they could also represent security. Sorry, we got the list of, um, yeah, you've got a list of those things, authority, security, authenticity. Should have just put that up. Um, They could represent security. So Daniel chapter 6, a seal is placed on the entrance to the lion's den that Daniel is kept inside. And the seal is placed on the stone. It's the king's seal. So that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel, is what the text says. That is, it is a way of utterly securing something and saying, you move this stone, you will be responsible for your own death because the king will get you. Because this this lion's den is secure because the king has sealed it. That's what it would do. Or, one of the ones you might immediately think of, a seal might suggest authenticity. That is, this genuinely came from the person who's claiming it's from them. So you use that on a letter. You write a letter, hot wax, put your seal on it. Okay, I recognize that seal. That means I know that it's genuinely from him or her. Right? It's the, it's the person, the letter writer's way of saying, this one's really mine. Or they could be used as a mark of ownership or depth of relationship. And this is it's a beautiful text in Song of Songs. You have this lovely line where the lover says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Saying, I want you to know that I am yours and you are mine. And this seal is like a proof of that. And finally, it could communicate preservation, safety, being protected. Right? If something was sealed, like in Isaiah 8, it was protected from the elements and harm. And we still do that today, don't you? You open a jam jar and it often goes, at the, you know, I, could, I can't do that noise very well. But you know that thing where you open the jam jar and it makes that noise as if to say the seal's just been broken. Or you get a package sometimes, and it'll say, if seal is broken, contents have been tampered with or something. Because it's a way of saying, the seal protects this thing from being messed around with. And Paul says, you have been sealed. He makes it very clear in Ephesians 1, actually. You have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You have been given a seal, who is God, the Holy Spirit. And that means, by sealing us with the Holy Spirit, God has authorized you to act on his behalf. 
Right? So you go and you have a conversation. Let's say you go and have a conversation with a, a sickness or a demon or just preaching the kingdom, and the, they start arguing back. And they say, oh, no, 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 I'm not sure. I don't know who you are. You look a bit big for your boots. You're not arguing with me. You're arguing with the one who gave me this seal. That's the king. And he says, you've got to do this. Right? You see, the Holy Spirit is the validation of your authority in that context. It's true of security as well. God effectively has rolled a stone of protection and security over your life and stamped it so that nothing can be changed concerning your future in his eyes. Being sealed with the Spirit verifies your authenticity as well. It's like stamping a letter. The Holy Spirit is the one who proves you are one of his. You say, I've got the Holy Spirit. That's a mark of the authenticity that he is the author and I am the letter he has written. He, I'm genuinely one of God's. The seal of the Spirit marks our ownership by God, our closeness of relationship to him, so that a seal again is in our lives, marking that I am my beloved's and he is mine. And that relationship is as strong as death. And finally, because we are sealed, we will be preserved and protected from anything that might, the world might throw at us so that neither death nor life, neither the past nor the present, height nor depth, nor any powers, nor anything in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Jesus our Lord. So the seal of the Spirit is incredibly important, not just to hear, but to know in our hearts, to experience, to encounter because he is the validation of all of these things taking place in our lives. And that takes us on to the final image that Paul uses, which is that God has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, as a deposit. This is the word you would use in ancient Greek to describe a deposit or a down payment on something. Right? So the, the, the easiest analogy for this, you may have sold a flat or a house. And if you have... You'll know it's a nerve-wracking process, particularly as you're waiting, particularly if you're trying to buy somewhere and sell somewhere at the same time. It can be quite an anxious process, right? Because you're waiting, sometimes for months, thinking, is the chain going to break? Is the survey going to find something rotten in my house that means my buyer's going to get cold feet and pull out? And you worry about that for some time until the great day when the estate agent rings and says, your buyer's deposit is in, you have exchange contracts. And as soon as the deposit or the down payment is in, suddenly doubt turns to confidence. So you've spent months going, what if the chain goes and what if my deposit clears and theirs don't? And then suddenly when the deposit from the other person lands in your bank account, you just turn that doubt into breezy certainty and you start walking around your sitting room going, nothing can separate even if I went away, your deposit never fails. Because you know that they're in, they're committed and they're not going to pull out because no one gives you that much money if they're just going to drop it. And you can then get ready to move into your new home with absolute certainty that it will be yours. And Paul says, God's deposit, his guarantee, his down payment is the person of the Holy Spirit who has been given to you, anointed you and sealed you. He is the guarantee that the rest of your inheritance, the eternal glories God is preparing for you, that, you, that he's the guarantee that you'll get them. Because nobody, God is committed. By giving you the Spirit, he's proved everything else is going to come as well. And a lot of Christians live life as if the deposit hasn't arrived. As if no one's told us, as if the estate agent forgot to tell us. And living as if, I wonder if any minute now, the buyer is going to pull out. I wonder if the chain of blessings is going to break. I wonder if God is going to do his survey over my life and find something rotten. I wonder if he's going to say, 
if I'd known Jonathan Manning was that bad, I'd never have saved him. And I'm actually going to pull out and withdraw and retreat. I'm not sure I would go there now knowing what I know about him. And people can live as if that's true. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. The Holy Spirit has been given as a, the deposit's already in. The buyer is never going to get cold feet. He has paid his down payment for you. He is never going to withdraw. And you can know for certain that your home, that you are preparing yourself for, that God has given you eternal glory in, you're definitely going to make it. Because the Holy Spirit has been given to you as a seal and as a guarantee. And on that basis, your doubt turns to confidence. And instead of thinking, what if the survey of God in my life turns up something rotten? We instead just, nothing can separate, even if I went away, your love never fails. Because we know our buyer is committed and our saviour is not going to let us down. You can get ready to move into your new home. Certain you will make it. Because of the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. In Christ, in the Spirit, you are established, anointed, signed, sealed, delivered, guaranteed. Hallelujah. (laughs) Father, we thank you so much for the person of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for giving him to us, not just as a one-off, but as an ongoing experience of being drenched and filled with him. And we pray that even now, as we gather together to sing and pray for one another, you would minister to us in the way that only you can. You would write your truths, not only, and the experience of the the goodness of the truths, not only into our minds, but into our hearts, that we would encounter these beautiful realities by the power of the Holy Spirit. We would live in the good of that drizzling oil of your Spirit, the seal of the Spirit you've given, and that guarantee, and you would help us know these things and live fired by and rejoicing in these things, and you would do that by the Spirit you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen.